I got to shave my legs now. <laughs> I'm going to do it for work. So <laughs> Dan is like, Dan is very against shaved legs. I don't know why. And it's like every year, I'm like, I'm going to shave my legs and I'm going to race. He's like, no, don't do it. And whatever. I end up doing it anyway. But um, now I can say, no, it's for science and or it's for like, it's for work. I'm actually I'm shaving, shaving my legs for work. for science. <laughs> we can totally do Yeah. Well, let's go with that. Is that a cold open right there? I think so. That's what I was kind of <laughs> angling for. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today we're just going to keep it uh, with Michael and myself. We're going to kick it old school and do an I've been thinking about episode, uh, which I think it's been a little while since we've done one of these. So I'm pretty excited to just have some, you know, one on one personal time with our many, (laughs) many listeners. But uh, no, there's there's some interesting topics that we've been kind of going over recently. And I think uh, it's, it's a good opportunity to explore some of these. So one being aero testing, which we've uh, had a lot of interest in. And the other being um, how I've kind of put myself in a corner right now for an upcoming race. And we suspect that there's probably a lot of people who are going through the same kind of thing right now, just given the uncertainty with schedules and races being rescheduled. And if you did happen to come down with COVID like I did, um, trying to get that volume in in a crunch is yeah, it's it's intimidating. So uh, we'll find out how screwed I am, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as Andrew said, we have had a bunch of guests that that we we're super excited about, and we actually have uh, an episode recorded already with a really great guest that will will air after this one. Um, but it has been in quite some time since we just had the the two of us on the tape, and uh, this is also going to be the first uh, episode that we throw up on our YouTube channel as the first recorded video recorded podcast episode so listeners look Whoa, out for that i didn't know about this <laughs> were you gonna wear a better shirt because uh, i'm not uh, <laughs> we're, we're keeping it it's 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 casual it's casual tuesdays over here in the in the messy basement of the Librazon household so it's, i think you're i think you're doing just fine andrew all right um, when google gives us permission to start a youtube channel apparently you have to have your accounts live for 30 days before they do so soon. Well, plenty of time to polish up and airbrush all our <laughs> videos. Not doing that, but <laughs> I don't, you don't you don't pay me enough money to uh, to airbrush videos. Um, so, listeners, yeah, it's 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 going to be a fun episode. But before we get going, we we once again want to say thank you to the show sponsor for our innovations uh, for helping us defray some of the costs of uh, of making the show and uh, uh, giving us the opportunity to talk to you folks uh, once a week. And um, as uh, as you've probably heard us say in the past, um, we we both use and uh, and enjoy the product. And as listeners to the show, you can uh, do the same. And with the factory install twenty uh, percent discount that Four Eyes kindly offered uh, to our listeners, you can enjoy these things at a at a slightly lower cost. And this is actually a great application of it too, because we've got uh, a huge talk about aero testing, where power mm-hmm. is probably one of the most important things you can measure um, to to make it possible to even aero test. So, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, very very topical. <laughs> uh, yeah, hundred percent. So, do you want to start with aero testing, or uh, and then go to your race? Yeah, why not? I'm uh, I'm not in a rush to find out how much trouble I'm in. So, we'll start <laughs> with aero testing. <laughs> right. So, uh, listeners, as you've heard us tease out, and uh, and from the the past, well, some of the past guests we've had in the in the last, uh, uh, I don't know, six weeks or so, six episodes or so, uh, we've definitely had aero testing on the brain, and uh, obviously aerodynamics is a big, uh, you know, big point of interest for the two of us. Um, the fact that we can now actually start testing is super exciting and so that's what i've been doing in toronto uh mostly testing on myself but i've had 
um, friend of the show and past guest Tara Posnikoff uh, volunteer her time to help me shake out some uh, you know some knowns and unknowns in a in a test session that we did last week. Uh, let's say I learned a lot of lessons from that testing uh, that testing experience, uh, you know, which is obviously a positive because then I don't have to make those mistakes next time. Um, but it's a it's a really fascinating process with uh, with a lot of. Uh, a lot of nuances, as um, and one of them, of course, as Andrew mentioned, is reliability of your power meter. Um, and uh, in the past, when we've talked about power meters, we've uh, advised folks to, you know, maybe save a few bucks and go single sided, uh, just because of uh, you know reliability and repeatability. Rather, was is there for a single sided power meter, um, and the value of a dual sided was questionable from the left right perspective. Um, but one application where a dual-sided power meter really does make a difference is in aero testing because there you are after, you know, an absolute value. Um, and also one of the things that I just learned recently, um, left-right power or left-right power uh, difference changes with intensity, which I sort of knew before, but it also changes with fatigue. So as, uh, as you, the athlete, fatigues, your left and right balance can change. Hmm. Which, which in the context of aero testing, if you're starting out with, you know, a left-right balance of, let's say, 50-50, but it turns out that your right leg fatigues faster than your left, um, what was 50-50 becomes maybe 48-52 or even like 46-54 by the end of the testing session. And the, the real impact of that is that if you ran your baselines or your first handful of tests at 50-50 and your last handful of tests at 46-54 or yeah 46-54 then you're not going to be able to compare apples to apples anymore then your then your your results are a little bit suspect now there are ways to get around this and uh shout out and big thank you to sebastian from uh aerotune who who explained that whole process to me but this is kind of the one um, obvious case use case for having a dual sided power meter. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty easy to imagine how that would add up over time and how it could lead to inaccurate results, and uh, it could lead to you thinking, "Oh, I am getting faster," when in reality you're getting slower, um, and that could just be based on your own fatigue. Mm -hmm. So it's it's definitely an interesting uh, part to tackle, and yeah, great application of the dual sided. Uh, normally, I would agree with you that single sided is more than enough for most racing, but uh, this is an application where absolute power and I would say accuracy rather than repeatability is uh, is the most important factor. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, jumping back to aero testing, it's uh, it is a really cool cool um, you know experiment as I put it, and there's so many things that we can influence. Like the the more I do it, the more I uh, kind of my eyes open to the wow, we can change this in in your position, and then we can change this in your clothing, and we can change this in your setup, and so it's um, there are so many. Uh, you know, so many levers that we can we can operate and in, in order to get that optimal position and optimal um, kind of, you know, low CDA. Um, but the, uh, the more I do it and the more I talk to smart folks like Sebastian and like Pierre, um, the kind of the, the better handle I get on, you know, the 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 low gets you know the 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 easy the the things that are the most reliable to um, uh, to produce a useful result so case in point something that didn't work uh, when I when I tested Tara on on Friday was the high hands position and so um, it was we we tested one that just wasn't sustainable for her you know from from a biomechanics or a comfort perspective and then we went a little bit lower position that she she was able to ride comfortably or comfortably enough uh, but we, we saw a slower you know a slower test so a, a higher CDA and um, I had the opportunity actually this morning to talk to Sebastian about it. And uh, one of the things that he clued me onto was that, you know, high hands, depending on how high the hands go, um, according to him, it's a 50-50 proposition. So for some people, for about half of the population in his experience, and he's done a lot of these way, way, way more than I have, um, you know, there's a, there's a positive result there. There's a, you know, a savings in uh, aerodynamic drag, a reduction. But with other people, um, you get slower. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to see, and this is why, you know, and I've, I've beaten this drum, you know, you know, listeners, I like beating drums. I've beaten this drum a lot that 
for you cannot generalize positions by looking at someone. You have to test it to to see if this is something that's going to make you faster, neutral. It's going to make you slower. And most of these things have implications both in aerodynamics, at least positions, uh, both in aerodynamics, but also in comfort. Right. So if something makes you slower, but it makes you more comfortable, maybe that's something that you want to do. But if it's something that um, which sometimes slightly higher hands can can do, can have that effect. Uh, again, according to Sebastian. And then, um, but other times, you know, if it makes you slower and less comfortable, then that's that's an easy kind of thing to cross off your list. And I totally agree with this too. Like I've seen, um, yeah, I never really put it in terms of 50-50, but uh, there's been quite a number of the virtual wind tunnel analyses that I've done where um, there's just no improvement. Um, it's not necessarily that people get worse, but it's just uh, quite often I'd see, well, there's you're very insensitive. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah. It's not an insult. You're just insensitive to aerodynamics. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but and and myself included. Like I've actually found very little sensitivity with my own model playing around uh, with high hands position, which is uh, pretty disappointing for me because I was hoping it'd be the the one thing I could apply. But yeah, um, yeah and I, I haven't been able to nail down exactly what it is. Um, just in terms of looking at the analysis, it's uh, it's pretty complex when you look at the full body. It's hard to say. This is slightly different, um, you know, with enough time and enough digging could probably determine some of that, but it's, it's a challenging problem and it's, it's not obvious. The, the eyeball wind tunnel that gets so much traction in certain areas, uh, it's yeah. not always that accurate. For sure. For sure. Um, uh, to your point, I think, um, remember when we did the episode where you broke your body down and said like this component, mm. this part of my body, this component generates this much drag. And then I had some questions to you. I think it was about high hands and you said, yeah, the, it's, it's really hard to, to make a, make a conclusive call on this because you don't know if it's, you know, you may be saving some, you may be reducing drag in this part of the, of the system, but then increasing it somewhere else. Right. And exactly. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really tough thing to nail down and isolate. Um, and with enough testing, you can find differences in flow patterns, things like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's a complicated one, and it's not something that can get that blanket um, application and blanket results. So, right, it was interesting that you confirmed that with Tara. Yeah, well, her so she didn't slow down very much. We, we she and we were kind of second guessing some of the values because of the heavy traffic. Uh, that we saw that day, which of course affects testing in a big way. And this was my probably my most useful lesson learned is, is do not test in the late morning, early afternoon on a Friday in the summer in Toronto on a north-south stretch of road, which heads to cottage country, because you will in you know no matter how quiet that road is at other times, it's guaranteed to be busy on a Friday afternoon. But um, yeah, so so the number I think she she only gained point uh, oh uh, one I think uh, CDA, so it's not trivial um, or one arrow point as the arrow tune folks would call it. So not trivial, but but not not a uh, not a huge amount. But it was um, there was also some like loss in comfort because it was also a, new, a novel position for her. So it's mm -hmm. certainly something that we would not choose as a as something that you know to train into. And I do wonder as well, um, and this is really hard to separate out, but when you're making all these positional changes, how much comfort comes into play? Uh, I think talking with um, uh, the Danish... Uh, Mar Martin Toff Martin, Madsen? Yes, Martin Toff Madsen. Thank you. Uh, he, he had said that it takes a few laps to settle into your position. It takes a little time to settle into your position. And I would suspect mm -hmm. if you're going, especially if you're a less experienced rider, if you're going to a new position, it's going to take some time before you feel comfortable and before your body really falls into that natural position. So it may, may be faster, maybe slower when it's not in that natural position, but it's probably going to be different. That's a fair point. And it's interesting too, that uh, the position that Tara was her baseline position, uh, this, this test was a position that I put her in to when we did our, uh, our fit originally in, I want to say 2017 or something. And then she had, she had you guys come in and do the uh, the scans, mm -hmm. or maybe I did those scans. But anyway, you guys you guys analyzed them for us, and um, and that position hasn't changed in six no 
five years, maybe four, four to four or five years. So she's really locked into that position. And so, you know, and, and some people are different, you know, there's the kind of the term of micro adjusters or macro something or others, like people who can, you know, who notice every little difference in their position versus people who can like ride a two by four and, and not really <laughs> get too, too worked up about it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, if if she's one of the former, then it would be she would notice every little change in the position, and that would affect her kind of you know maybe her her ability to to hold that position in uh, in the test. It's it's hard to say. I think there was there was so much noise from the traffic in the in the on the day that it's it's difficult to tease out you know other potential sources of error. So what would be your confidence based on your testing, your confidence in the error bars, the results, essentially, are you looking at using Sebastian's terminology, the arrow points, are you looking at like half an arrow point or a third or? That's such a good question. I'm actually going to pull up, pull up her, um, her results. So some of the better tests, they were, um, the, the standard deviation was, uh, 0.4 arrow points. So in CDA speak, it would be the third digit. Okay. Those were some of the tighter error bars. The averages on this run, and again, listeners and now viewers, um, not ideal test conditions, right? So this is this this was the lessons learned uh, edition of uh, of error testing, but some of the more stable tests were like yeah, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 error points, which is the third. If you were talking about three digit CDA, so you know, 0. 0.213, it's the plus or minus. Oh, oh, six, oh, oh, five. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good for context. And knowing that, uh, I think it's two standard deviations. It's a 95% confidence interval that you'll be within that, uh, within that gap. I think if mm-hmm. I'm remembering all my statistics. I think that's right. I think that's right. The, the, yeah. Cause like three Sigma was like nine, nine, seven, I think. If I remember my stats, so we're not we're not getting that far ahead. But the thing with arrow testing that that folks um, and this is something I'm going to be prefacing anybody who's you know using our service with and listeners, it's good to keep this in mind. It's you you can you can get your your test results are going to heavily depend on the conditions, right? So mm-hmm. even if everything is done to the T, if your power meter is perfect, if your technique is perfect, and if you're, you know, you're, you're able to hold a position amazingly well, and, um, you know, you're everything, everything's right. Everything's amazing. Um, you test under given wind sp- speeds, given air density and temperature, which affects air density, of course, if you, you know, go out and test again on some other course or in other, you know, climatic conditions and wind direction, wind speed, your, your actual, you know, CDA on that day or in that test or in that race is going to be different, right? It's going to be different because it's always, de- it depends on, on conditions. Like so much so that um, one of the things that Aerotune does is it, it, depending on the conditions it you know they recommend doing multiple passes of the same setup at a, at a minimum of two and in some cases three or four and that's just to kind of average out the error right so one of the things that sebastian's told me a couple of times now is that you want to you know each you know any individual test may be off you know as you as you say plus or minus six point six zero points here um, but the average of four is going to be really quite good yeah, and from I guess from a signal processing standpoint, that's basically just signal to noise ratio. You're just getting rid of the the noise that you have in each individual test, and the, and the stronger mm-hmm. the uh, the mean value, the average value you're getting, um, the more confidence you have in the results. 100 percent, 100 percent. So it's uh, it's it's really interesting to. I'm really excited to be doing this because it's it's like it it's. It really, you know, like gets the neurons firing. Like, huh? Why didn't this work? Oh, it's because of this. And also, we are as we're um, as we're going through, uh, you know, as we're building out this service, we're actually adding to the number of possible things that you can test and ways to test them. So, for example, we have, you know, um, three helmets that, that that folks can test, and we're I think Andrew, you're sending a, sending me a couple more, mm-hmm. um, and we also had Velotech, uh, who make really pretty cool suits out of uh, Ireland. Uh, send us some samples that we can test that I'm super excited about things with uh, 
uh, things with arrow features on the sleeves and things that with within without pockets. Um, and of course, you know, anyone who's testing can bring their own kit and different options to test. So there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, to find some speed that's um, non-position related. And then there's so many things as I'm learning, um, position related things that we can do to, uh, to improve, you know, improve that uh, or reduce that aerodynamic drag too. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting process to go through. And you, you do learn so much about the challenges of testing. Um, but I'm, I'm super excited to try this out myself. It's, uh, yeah, unfortunately I can't, uh, can't really drive out to Toronto and, and see you right now, but, uh, soon. maybe, maybe sometime soon. Yeah, soon, soon. Um, yeah. So, uh, listeners, if you're, if you're interested, drop us a note, um, if you're in the Toronto area and are able and, or are able to drive out here, uh, we're doing some pretty special pricing in, in June as I'm, you know, as I'm still, as I said, as I'm still learning about the process a little bit. Um, and we also have, uh, I can't just, I'm not going to, you know, name names be- until it's, uh, until I've actually tested these folks, but some, some really, you know, interesting cases, some really high level athletes that have, uh, agreed to work with us on this and, uh, and help us prove the, you know, the value of the service, because I'm thinking that if, if I, if, you know, we can make, if we can help these, these guys that are already quite fast and, and quite aerodynamic, if we can improve, you know, their setups and that, that's a huge deal, right? And then that's, that's a, that's a really good uh, proof of concept for, for everyone, for everyone else out there. Yeah. Yeah. And these, um, well, I, I don't know if I want to go too far down that path because I'm going to give away names, so I don't want to kiss and tell. Let's not do it. Well, we'll we'll reveal it once we actually have some test data for them, because that's one of the things that uh, that you know that was our deal with them is like we 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 have to be we, you have to let us talk about it even if you don't want us to share your actual CDA values. We'll keep those secret, but uh, we will we have we have the rights to talk about the process. So um, yeah, and we'll definitely do that on this uh, on this podcast and YouTube channel as uh, as we as I get the opportunity to to uh, work with these guys. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing about that. And it's a shame I can't be there for the testing. Yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure something out. I think hopefully soon we'll, we'll have some travel restrictions lifted and you'll be able to swing by. Because you still have family um, in southern Ontario, right? I do, yes. Uh, quite a bit of family and friends. So, um, yes, I will be back. I feel like nice. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was telling my kids about uh, about Calgary. I can't remember how it came up. There was something about I, I I really don't remember. But they're like, "Can we, Daddy? Can we go?" I'm like, "Yeah, we'll go as soon as you know they'll let us go." <laughs> so oh, we'll we'll make a, we'll knows? make a visit soon, sometime soon too. It's such a um, political thing. Uh, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about your race. What have yeah. you gotten yourself into? Yeah. What What have I done? Um, so. Last year or two years ago, I guess, one of our early episodes, we had Scott Cooper, who at the time was a, a colleague of mine at Four Eyes. And um, he is a an exceptional ultra runner. Um, I don't profess to be anywhere near that kind of talent. But um, through a couple friends, through Shane Pegg, who's uh, uh, one of the co-founders of Stack, um, he convinced me, actually I did the convincing, but uh, we decided to do the Sinister 7 race as a relay. Um, so we're doing like less than one seventh of what Scott did because um, there's seven legs, but uh, ignoring the fact that we're not that <laughs> that talented, uh, we're, we signed up for this race and we weren't really sure if it was going to happen. And there were some other external factors like um, I also came down with COVID, which kind of wiped out a lot of my fitness. I've been recovering from that, trying to figure out, um, well, based on our our previous conversations about some of the impacts of COVID, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to mm-hmm. drop dead if I go out and run. <laughs> um, so far, I haven't. So that's good. Good. But good. Uh, if this is our last episode, then you know what happened. But um, the, uh, the, the running has been a rough road, um, trying to get back that fitness where I just kind of wipe the slate clean. Mm -hmm. And I I really don't know how best to approach this. I don't want to overtrain. I don't want to get injured, Mm -hmm. but I do want to build up volume um, because these are some pretty tough legs that are, uh, that are in this race. So the Sinister Seven, um, seven different legs that you do because it's a relay. 
I can choose uh, to to a limited extent anyway. But the the worst legs are basically thirty one to thirty five kilometers, uh, which on its own isn't too bad. But when you combine it with two thousand meters of elevation gain, that becomes a pretty serious leg to do. Um, so. Mm-hmm. I'm in this position now where like I've been doing long runs on weekends um, and, you know, whether they get interrupted by thunderstorms and hailstorms or <laughs> extreme heat, which is uh, the, the only two options in Alberta, it seems. But uh, yeah, just trying to figure out how do I actually get enough volume in uh, for this race and how do I make sure that I don't let down the rest of the team, that I don't get injured and that I don't put myself in a position where uh, where I could where something bad could happen to me. So mm-hmm. um, I'm suspecting that there's a few listeners who are in similar positions because, you know, you don't know if a race is going to go ahead. It's kind of a last minute thing where some Ironman races are at the very last minute, they're getting canceled and you're going up to it with a whole bunch of uncertainty. Uh, and it depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on the government in the area. Um, so there's all these variables and, I think people are getting thrown into races where maybe they're not fully prepared or they have to do kind of a crash course to get themselves back up. So what do I do? Hmm. So let me, uh, a, a couple of questions. So the, the Sinister 7, you're doing just one leg, right? So one, like 30, 30 to 35K? Yeah, so I, I talked to Shane and I'm going to try and do probably the second hardest leg or uh, I think it's leg two of the race, but it's going to be about 31 kilometers, I think 1600 meters of elevation gain. Um, so it's it's a decently challenging leg. It's not the hardest, um, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's going to be a tough one. Right. And where? what's your state of, what's your run volume currently, like the last week or the last couple of weeks? How much are you running per week? Uh, recently, I've been doing about six hours, seven hours per week, um, or trying to get up to that. Uh, the long runs on weekends, um, and then, so those would be about two hours, and then the rest of the week, I'm kind of doing uh, a couple runs that are about 45 minutes, so to make up the the remainder of that. So it's, yeah, maybe between five and seven hours, depending on the week. Okay. And, um, you, okay. And then how much time do you have? Uh, not a whole lot more than this. Um, I could definitely squeeze a longer No, I run. mean like how much time do you have to oh, the race? When's the uh, race? How much? So, yeah. So this is, today is July. Or, let's start that again. Today is June 8th and the race I think is July 11th. So it's, uh, it's about a month. So yeah, not a whole okay. lot of time. Four and a half weeks. Right. Um, so, and then you, to get up to your five to seven hours, have you been ramping that up quickly or, or were you able to ramp it pretty gradually? I maintained a, a little bit of uh, volume before I got COVID, but um, <clears throat> I've been ramping it up reasonably quickly, but kind of keeping the the runs to a medium intensity, not going too hard on any... Um, I try to do them indoors or sorry, I try to do them outdoors when I can, but, uh, some, mm-hmm. some of them have been indoors and I've actually been trying to balance because I find that, um, when I do a lot of indoor training, uh, the treadmill is a little bit softer, so I don't have problems with shin splints, but it takes some time to build up those, uh, those muscles for running outdoors and the impact resistance. So, um, I've, I've been trying to go back and forth and get as much outdoor running as I can without overdoing it. Mm-hmm. But I like the treadmill as an option because uh, it's more controlled conditions. It lets you, without as much risk of an injury, it lets you build up. And plus, if you're feeling exhausted and something happens, you can just hop off as opposed to getting stuck, you know, an out and back run where you have to walk right. up to half the, the distance. Right. Um, so... Uh, really like interesting case. And as you say, this is something that, that lots of people are facing. You, more common, I would say, is people facing kind of the, not the opposite, but like a different case where races are being pushed back. So people were like, you know, in training for a race that was on day X and now it's X plus two months, right? Because things are being, mm-hmm. <clears throat> things are being pushed out that far. But uh, yeah, in, in your case, um, your number one mission is not to get hurt, right? Like it's very, very easy, you know, listeners, I'm sure you know this. Um, we have a lot of listeners who are runners that if you ramp up too quickly, too much, too fast is kind of like the adage of of like 90%, I don't know, I'm making up a number, but like uh, the, the majority of injuries in, in running for uh, an overuse injury. So basically your your tissues just don't have the opportunity to to 
strengthen sufficiently to to adapt to the load and you put on too much chronic load and then something fails right so you're no good to anybody if you're hurt so in kind of like a, a you know a general principle you you better you're better off being uh, undertrained and healthy than you know, you're probably not going to overtrain yourself in, in five weeks, although it's, yeah, probably not, but you can, you can develop an injury, no problem, right? Like that's, especially if you have, you know, if you have shin splints or medial tibial stress syndrome or, uh, which is, you know, the nerdy name for shin splints uh, or, or, you know, actual stress fractures. If you know that's a weak link for you, that's something to really watch out for. Um, so in terms of training, you, you want to accumulate as much time on your feet this would be kind of my my prescription for it you want to accumulate as much time on your feet running with the minimal amount of stress and that's a tricky thing to do so the 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 way to manage that in my understanding of these things is um you don't want to do any intensity like you want to you know you said you keep things to moderate intensity uh i've never coached you so i don't know what your definition of moderate is but i would say that you want to keep everything to a low intensity so Mm. um because you're going to be uh, primarily limited by two factors in a race that's this long. Uh, one is metabolic, which we can talk about for sure. It's important. It's like energy use more or less. And the other is like, is, is, um, f- like structural or like in, the, in that, you know, structural would be more for training, but it's, it's like motor unit fatigue. Right. So we've talked to, who do we talk to? We had, uh, Phil Bellinger had a really nice presentation on the show, about like, you know, uh, fast twitch, slow twitch kind of modeling for muscles and sort of what happens when you fatigue. Um, and so, but it's commonly, it's commonly understood that as you, you know, if you're running at a, or if you're exercising at a moderate intensity or low intensity, it's primarily your slow twitch type one motor units that are doing most of the work. But as they, you know, start to run out of glycogen and, or as they fatigue, you start to recruit more type two motor units and that's, that increases the, the fuel cost quite a bit. Um, and it also, you know, they also may or may not be fatigue, very fatigue resistant, depending on how, how well you've trained them. So all that to say that, you know, training fatigue resistance is just time on your feet. Um, that's probably the most, and also building resiliency to prevent injury. That's probably the most useful thing. Um, and then, so for that, I would say you want to have as much running time as you can, but, but also not adding too quickly, right? So you're stuck with the, with not having a ton of time, but one way that I would remove training stress from the equation is not to have too much too much intent or actually no intensity. Like I, if, if mm. I were coaching you, like I'd say like everything is, uh, is well below your aerobic threshold. So well below that LT one, um, uh, run pace, um, with, with maybe the occasional exception of a little bit of a technical run on trails. And when you're running trails, if you have 1600 meters over 30 kilometers, that's obviously a lot of elevation. Um, I, w- I would say, like, I would say, like learn to walk, right? Because it would be it's it's very much in your best interest to right from the start in your race to know which 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 sort of inclines you're going to walk. And I would be very conservative on which ones you're going to walk. So even when like people are blowing by you and and running up all of these inclines, uh, you know, you're in for a long day, you some of them you should be like right up front prepared like plant like in this is in my plan I'm going to walk these kind of inclines because mm-hmm. there are some inclines that you cannot run easily. Right. Like even walking up a certain incline, it gets your heart rate up. You know, we have some hills in the valley in the dawn here that like I know if I walk them at a good, like, you know, steady pace, my heart rate's going to be above what an easy run heart rate is by the time I get. It's kind of like climbing stairs right? by the time I get to the top. Mm-hmm. So um, know which ones to walk. Practice some walking in your in your long runs. Um, and another way that you can sneak in a little bit safer intensity or in, a little bit safer long duration is double your weekend. So Saturday, Sunday runs and maybe even like a.m. p.m. Uh, runs on the Sunday. So it's a way that you give your body a little bit of recovery, but you're not fully recovered. And so you're still getting some of that training stimulus, but it's a little bit safer on all of the all of the tissues. Yeah. And the, the double runs is actually something I did want to ask you about because I've been trying to do that on weekdays as well. Um, just where I have limited time at lunch when I can do a run. And then uh, after, you know, later in the evening, if I can get back out and get some more volume in there, that at least maybe it's not the same fatigue resistance, but it builds some of the resiliency that you mentioned. 
I think it does. So I think like, I don't know this well enough. All right. And I, if anyone's listening to the show knows this, I really want to hear from you. But um, I, my kind of my suspicion is that, uh, so you, there's things you can do metabolically, right? Like if you kind of restrict carbs, but I also wouldn't do that. And I'll tell you why. Um, so the metabolically, the, there's some things you can do, but I suspect that, you know, depending on how much you run AM, PM, you're not, a hundred percent recovered, you know, your motor units are not a hundred percent recovered and not probably not refueled, um, fully. And also, you know, you're, anytime you're applying that kind of stress and running is super stressful, right? Cause of all the eccentric muscle contractions, every time you apply that stimulus, you're, you're going to get some kind of response. So if you can do, if you apply it twice during, you know, twice during the day, you're going to get a, you're going to get a stronger response. There is a lot of value in just the amount of time you spend running, which was kind of like one of my, you know, early, early points for, for, for my prescription for you. So I think AMPM splits are really smart. Um, they're also safer, right? Like if you can do 45 mm-hmm. and 45, it's less, you know, let your, your injury, your risk of injury is lower than if you did like a 90 minute all in one go. Yeah. Right. So I would say keep intensity really low, make sure you hydrate, make sure you you, you fuel it well. Um, and, uh, you should be, you should be in pretty good shape. Okay. So it's not as gloom and doom as I was worried it might be. No, you're going to be um, yeah. undertrained, right? Like you, you have to go into it knowing that, like, look, if you had, you know, if you had like 12, 16 weeks to prep for this thing, like you would have, you would be coming into it at a, in a much better shape, right? But, you know, look, you're going to be out there for what, like five-ish hours, right? That's that's a long day, mm-hmm. but it's not like exceptionally long. Like your body, you're, you've done Ironman, you've done lots of 70.3s, like you've done activities that are in, of, of that duration. So that itself isn't going to be a massive shock to you. It's going to be about smart kind of smart pacing on the day and also you know smart fueling um so the other thing i, I said we talk about meta- metabolic stuff is you should start training with um start training your gut for for optimal carb absorption too mm-hmm. right um so five hours isn't an exceedingly long event right like it's not like you're doing all seven stages but you're still you know you're you could potentially be carb limited towards the end. Um, so, you know, you want to see how much your body will tolerate and see if you can push that envelope a little bit um, and make sure that you're more important than make sure you're getting enough hydration just from, you know, water and electrolytes, but also, yeah, may, you know, as much, as much carb as you can absorb. And we've had this, those conversations like with Steph Gaskell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that um, there's very good evidence at least that, you know, the, that your what the, you know, the total, carb absorption declines with time, right? So your, your body's ability to absorb carbohydrates declines with time. So, you know, if in the beginning when you're fresh and you're cool and you're, you know, your blood's well distributed, it's not all in your muscles um, or using to cool you off, um, then you can probably, even on the run, you might be able to get away with like 90, maybe even a little bit more grams per hour. But then as you are four hours deep, that might be much less, more, more than likely is going to be much less than that. So it's it's important to try to like front load it, but not not as not as a shock to the system. Make sure that you've practiced it. Um, yeah. And that's something, um, it's actually an excellent point. Not, I say that as if I'm shocked, but uh, I was fully expecting <laughs> you to make You've heard the same point. experts on this show as I have. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's something I've done in the past where I do train with the exact nutrition that I'm planning to use in a race. But uh, mm-hmm. honestly, it's been so long since I've raced that uh, some of these past lessons learned are just kind of distant memories right now. And I just hadn't thought of that. So it was, uh, yeah, very, very well taken. Um, it's definitely for my next run, I'm, I'm going to get the same fueling that I plan to use on the race itself. Yeah. And don't assume that your body will tolerate what you used to tolerate when you trained with it, right? So mm-hmm. if you used to be able to do 90 grams, don't assume you can do 90 grams in the first day. Maybe. Oh, try it. Um, and then the other thing too is from what I hear, and I, I, I should find a reference on this, is I think you you really only need to do two runs a week with that kind of fueling, right? Because there's there's you know, like if you're doing a 60 minute run or even a 90 minute run, 90 grams per hour is overkill, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we know that you don't need that much. It's, it's like, you probably are, you know, it's not helping your training. Um, but you, you want to practice, right? So practice on your long run, obviously, cause that's the most closely, re- you know, it most closely simulates what you're going to do on race day, but also practice on one other run during the week, but it doesn't need to be, and probably shouldn't be every run that you do. Okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, 
well, a bunch of great takeaways there. Um, and I know that uh, when the race actually does happen, we'll definitely have to do a debrief on it to yes. see how well or poorly it goes and how well I listen to your advice. <laughs> so I can, <laughs> I can also do that. I'll, and I'll be fully honest because I know what happens is I'll have a target pace and this happens to me every time, but I have a target pace and then I say, oh, I'm feeling good. And then yeah. just like slightly bump up and then disaster. Uh, but that's, that's my pattern. That's how I end up. <laughs> yeah. You and like 90% of the population, I would say, I would, I would try to discourage you from, from having a target pace in a trail race because it goes completely mm -hmm. out the window. Like trail running is one of those, and you've done enough of it to know yourself. Like, you know, it depends so much on the conditions. Like the classic example I like is there's a, there's actually, you know, and Toronto listeners will know this. Um, the Toronto has an amazing trail network in the, in the Don Valley. Uh, and it all and like it's several arms and um the you know i run those trails quite a bit and you know some of them are technical some of them less so but even on a technical trail on if i'm feeling okay you know my pace may be you know 6 30 or something you know if it's going up and down and i'm working at a moderate pace but let's say if it's muddy or let's say the, the best case scenario or the, or the best case of this is the winter there are times that i'll do winter runs where my pace per kilometer is like 9 30. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like I could walk faster than this on 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 flat road, but because the snow is really deep or it's icy. Right. And so there's so so I would say, like, just just take that out of your put that out of your mind. You know, your pace, your pace targets. Heart rate's actually not a bad target for um, for trail mm -hmm. racing. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is heart rate's probably what I'm going to follow. But one thing that makes that even more difficult or makes it slightly difficult in this case is the elevation change, too. Um, because mm. it does top out oh, my like, uh, 1800 meters, 1900 okay, meters. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. getting up there. It's getting a little thin. Um, and I remember when, like when I was in Kona, uh, well on the big Island with, uh, with Scott Cooper, actually, we went to the top of one of the mountains. I can't remember what the name is right now. And that's, uh, I think it tops out. I don't remember the meters. I think it's 4,900 meters or something, but it's like Five, uh, 15,000, close to 15,000 feet. Um, mm. So it's That's high. it's tall and you feel it. Like, well, I felt it. I almost passed out, it felt like. Um, I was getting uh, blurred peripheral vision, like purple huh. peripheral vision. So it was, um, yeah. yeah. I'm not getting that high, but I know elevation can have a huge impact on you. Totally. But then that's like, that's something to be taken into account. So your heart rate, mm -hmm. obviously, you you know, you may want to set slightly different targets, but that is, you know, your heart rate is an indicator of how hard your, you know, cardiorespiratory system is operating, right? And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it could, it could still be a good, a good marker for you to use. Yeah. And the, another interesting point on heart rate is, uh, as I was getting back into things and after, you know, my first long run, basically after having recovered from COVID, um, I I did, uh, I think it was an hour and 45 minutes. My average heart rate was like 167, 168. Um, and that's getting up there for me. I think my max is like 182, something mm. like that. So that's very high, it was, and I tend to run a little high on heart rate, but uh, that was exceptionally high. Like normally for a run that distance, I'd be like low to mid 150s. Um, oh. and at that pace. So that was really discouraging, but, uh, part of it is I just have to get it out of my head. Like, okay, I'm kind of starting from scratch again. I'm not expecting to do the same pace I used to do before, just because I, I did have a lot of that fitness wiped out. So interesting heart rate's funny because, uh, we can, we can dive down a lot of rabbit holes, but, um, when, when we had Colleen Moore on the show, and I don't know if we talked about this, but this is something that, uh, originally learned from his podcast, uh, listeners go check out empirical cycling. It's awesome. Um, but there was an, there were some experiments done with blood plasma and uh, it's one of the one of those um, you know one of those physiological I don't know physiological parameters that that changes very very quickly. So if you're if you're sedentary for a week, your blood plasma volume drops precipitously, mm -hmm. right? And then lower blood plasma volume means well, like less blood fluid in your body. That means your heart stroke volume goes down. Right, because you, you, there's less of this fluid to pump around, and your heart rate for the same, uh, you know, the same kind of external output, whether it's just you know watching Netflix on the couch or or running a marathon, goes up. 
So you lose a ton of blood plasma volume from sitting on your ass or especially being sick. That's the worst. It wipes it out. And then you, uh, then heart rate's super high. When you first come back, you're like, what the heck's going on? But within a week to two weeks, uh, provided you're not, you know, you're not a dummy about rehydrating, um, the blood plasma comes back, especially if you're training in the heat a little bit, it comes back big time. That's one of the biggest adaptations. Adapt, yeah. <laughs> one of the biggest adaptations to training in the heat is that blood plasma volume goes up, provided you do it okay. Um, and then heart rate goes right back down. So that that's something that is, I would say, very temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should talk about heart rate because that's, that's, a, that's a high percentage of your maximal heart rate to do long runs at. And I uh, wonder if you're doing them a little bit too fast. I would suspect probably. <laughs> it could also be one of the causes that, that Ironman marathons kick your butt so much because if you're used to training at a higher intensity, you just don't you just don't have the juice to to, to run yeah, at that yeah. inten- like that intensity uh, in the Ironman marathon and like training that training that down, like suppressing it. Basically I think it's maybe suppressing like VLA max, like like that glycolytic side could be could be potentially quite useful. Because I remember for me my heart, rate, my max heart rate on the run is probably a little bit lower, like 175. But I used to do long runs at around 150 bits, beats per minute, mm-hmm. um, and now my long runs are usually, usually around like it depends. I obviously it depends on on, on weather, but I try to keep it under like on a good on a good easy one it's under 130 but sometimes it's like low 130s would be kind of mid 130s would be the end and i definitely keep it under 140 mm-hmm. um but that's just like over time that's because i've just done a ton of slow the slow training um and uh yeah and that really helps with the really long stuff yeah it, it would be interesting to take a bit of a deep dive and in, into my own physiology with this just because we're using myself as, as an example right now. And there's one race in particular that I go back to. And I think like this, this is like my capstone race. It was something that I, I look back and think I, if I could do this race again, I would be so happy to get that kind of performance out of it. And it was the, um, the Welland long course race, the multi-sport Canada mm-hmm. Welland long course race, uh, probably I think it was 2017, but it was kind of a, a cool, but very humid day. And I remember the run, like it was my best. I, I actually set a personal record for a 15K run. And I think I did it at like a 405 pace. Wow. Uh, and my heart rate was, I think for the entire run was like 173 to 175 uh, after doing a pretty hard bike. That makes sense. And it was just like, I was absolutely pegged. I don't know how I didn't have a heart attack, but uh, it was just amazing that I could keep my heart rate that high, knowing that my maximum is kind of like 182 to 185, somewhere around there. So, yeah, it's that, it's that doesn't that's that's not like that surprising. I mean, that's probably you were probably right at right around threshold heart rate, right? And so it's it's possible that you know switching modalities, you can probably if you're if you're really well trained and you have like a really good day, um, you're you know also on on race day heart rate's gonna be higher because of like adrenaline and like excitement mm-hmm. up until you start to run on the glycogen anyway, and then it goes. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's entirely possible that that's, you know, that was obviously an excellent performance, but, uh, um, that doesn't blow me like that heart rate doesn't blow me away. Like there's no way you do an Ironman at that kind of level, right? Like that would never happen. But, um, at that, that race, like that race was what, three and a, three and a half, what was that? What would be yeah, the time for that? Three like hours and ten minutes, somewhere around there. Oh, three ten. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that's like that's very that's very much in that wheelhouse of like you know Olympic to seventy point three. Um, yeah, it's you. You definitely had a really good day, but it's uh, it doesn't doesn't blow my mind that it okay. was that you you were able to sustain it that high, and that that has to do with training. Like you probably did a shit ton of, of oh uh, yeah, I was of uh, of I threshold training. Yeah, of threshold work around uh, around that race, which is you know very sensible. Um, and that's that it kind of, Kali talked about this again, uh, shout out. Um, he talked about ex- basically like at a certain point, you want to extend the duration that you are able to maintain threshold power in his case. And basically mm-hmm. that's, you know, the training that you did, and I'm totally guessing here, but the training that you did, I mean, while well, the proof is in the, in the performance, um, the training that you did clearly supported that, uh, that, that element of your fitness. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'd love to get back there. I don't know if I ever will just because it was a couple of years ago now and we'll see. But uh, yeah, it's, it was, I think the most fun race I had uh, just knowing how close to the limit I was the entire time. So that's, that's a good memory to go back and think, 
you know, this race, I could not have gone any faster. There was nothing nice. left on the table. So, uh, and hopefully, you know, when I finish, uh, assuming I do finish the sinister seven leg, uh, hopefully I have that same kind of feeling where it's, it's something where I feel I'd paced it well, couldn't have left too much more on the table or didn't leave much on the table and couldn't have gone mm-hmm. too much faster, but, uh, but also trying to be conservative at the same time. So it's kind of like this competing objective there. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's very hard to pace those races because it is, it's v- like the, the risk of the risk of overdoing it. I might, you know, if when you're looking just at like final finish time, the risk of overdoing it is not worth the potential, like, slight improvement in, in, in pace in every kind of long course or, you know, long trail race I've ever done, you know, the people that pace it correctly, they end up passing so many people in the end, you know, cause it's just I'm like, usually one of those people, people that, start, that gets passed. <laughs> they, they get, they, you know, they're, they're, they're conked out. They like took off in the beginning and then you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll see you later. You know, at some point in time, I'll find you somewhere on the trail. Yeah. And a great example of that too. And I don't want to dwell on this point for too long, but, uh, Nate Pearson from trainer road, I remember listening to one of his podcasts talking about the, um, uh, oh man, what's the name of that high elevation gravel race? Uh, Leadville. Leadville. Yes. Thank you. Uh, he was saying like he started off at 150 Watts or something and it felt like he was barely turning the pedals and people just took off from mm-hmm. him and, he thought I have to go faster, but he fought it and he kept to his pacing. And then, you know, by the end he passed it pretty much every one of those people. Um, so it's, it's an easy mistake to make. Long races are really, really yeah. tough to pace. It's a, it's a survival race, right? Like it's, it's, you, you get, you have to, you have to play that long game and that's kind of, those are the people, you know, at the top end of the, at the top end of the sport, it's not that right. Like at the people who are competing for the top spots, they don't have the luxury of doing that. They mm-hmm. have to, you know, um, they have to respond to what the field's doing. And Cody had a really good post about that in Tulsa. I know he flatted and wasn't able to finish, but, uh, he talked about the efforts required to stay with the group in the beginning of the bike. Um, so for those guys, they, they're, they're playing in a different sandbox, but for the, you mm-hmm. know, for the rest of us, um, it's a time trial. Like you have to manage your energy in a long race. I mean, in any kind of duration of race, but anything that's long for sure, you have to manage your energy. If you don't do that well, that's, that's the, that's your quick exit, right? Or well, not quick, <laughs> slow and painful exit. Um, but, uh, if you can do it right, then, uh, then you, you know, then you're going to do, you're going to do quite well. Um, so yeah, for, for most people, that's my advice. Like slow the fuck down. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to pass all those people later. All right. Well, this is probably a good place to wrap it up. I feel like we could go down yes. several more rabbit holes, but uh, oh, for sure. why don't we wrap it up here and uh, and then maybe have a dissection of the, the performance in about a month's time. Yeah, definitely. I look forward to it. Uh, listeners, before we sign off, I want to read a really kind review with the handle of Traveling CEO from Norway. So thank you for, for this one. Um, uh, this person says this is that our show is his favorite training companion and he writes, uh, super interesting endurance training related topics with a geek tweak combines entertaining topics with lots of interesting advice on marginal gains, super companion on long runs. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, if you too enjoy the show, then, uh, please consider giving us a rating or review in iTunes and, uh, tell your friends because that's probably the best way that uh, new folks find our show uh, next week we have uh, Professor Jim Martin on the show talking about uh, crank lengths and cadence uh, really fun interview with uh, kind of the mm-hmm. probably the leading mind in the in that field um, and uh, you know and possibly so, one of the fastest cadences ever recorded yes also true also true so you have to you have to listen to that episode to uh, to see to hear how quickly Jim was able to turn his legs over um, and it was a lot of fun uh, you know confirming my biases with this particular expert um, but in the meantime give us a shout out uh, get in touch if you are interested in aero testing or have any questions about aerodynamics happy to chat about that and uh, those of you watching on YouTube congratulations you made it through a uh, I, what I imagine is going to be our first, uh, our first, at least our first podcast video. There will be other content on here talking about aero testing and uh, fun stuff that we're working on. Uh, but the podcasts will, uh, I'll try to get them up on in video form as well as audio, uh, just as something to have on the on the channel. So thanks everyone for uh, watching now and listening, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon.
like the rest of the suit is, you know, like super, you can kind of see through it. <laughs> is that right around the ass? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I want to put on a show. No, the ass is, is less, <laughs> less transparent. That's the back. That's the back. It looks to be pretty well vented. I feel fast putting it on because it's like, you know, snugs everything up. And <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no hiding the love handles in this fucking suit. Yeah. <laughs> Put extra vortex generators there. <laughs> All right. 